Okay, let's get started. Hey, my name is Jack Skeels, and I've got some things that I want you to see. Welcome back to The Art of Management, a podcast where I will help you see and understand the art of being an amazing manager. Me, I've been a researcher, professor, coach, award-winning entrepreneur even, and over the last decade I've had the privilege of coaching thousands of people just like you. This episode we're going to talk about the origins of the ideas behind how we manage, how we manage actually somewhat incorrectly. I'll start with the a scene where I'm sitting with several executives. They've brought me in because there's something going wrong, which is why I usually show up, right? And, and the thing they don't realize is that I've actually seen this situation, the same situation they're talking about, with dozens, if not maybe even over 100 different people, different executives just like them with the same problems. And they've never seen this problem before, nor have they ever figured out how to solve it. And when I suggest things to them, Typically, they'd have to do, maybe we should manage differently. They dismiss me as if I don't understand the problem. It's a really, really interesting experience. They dismiss me as if I don't understand managing. How could I understand? I'm not in their, they're sitting in their seat. And I think, well, where did you learn about managing? Who taught you? Where, what, what book did you read that told you how to manage the way that you're managing? And so this episode, we're going to go back to the beginning of managing. So I'm sitting there, famous company, they're having severe morale problems among, and I put quotes on this, their people. Now this always triggers me. This is how managers refer to non-managers as if, almost as if discussing some animals with an ailment. Like my dog, my dog has fleas or my sheep have this disease. And it has nothing to do with me. I'm just the observer and just the, there. I've identified the patient. It is the people. She summed it up in this sort of horrific way. She said, our people are very talented, but frankly, they just expect too much. I think it's a generational thing. They're always asking why and why not when the real answer is they just need to do what we told them to do. Now, I try to not flinch when I hear something like this. And I'll, of course, give them my questions about probable causes and what sort of things might be tried as just conceptually. And I usually get dismissed. And she went on to dismiss me and, and tell me that she knows, look, I know I have great people and the like. Okay. She doesn't see herself as part of the problem, nor is responsible for the solution, except how do we make it go away? She literally said she's a man, she has this unreasonable expectation situation thrust upon her by essentially the millennial mindset. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. They're just people. Her attitude's not rare at all. A lot of managers I, I come across think of it's unfair that they have to actually figure out how to get these people to perform. And this notion of people being like machines or farm animals or can they just hunker down and get the work done that actually came from someplace. And our story is going to take us back 100 plus years ago when a mechanical engineer changed the world's idea of what managing meant. 
and define sort of the subtext for how we think as managers today. Oh, and by the way, it was wrong, but we'll get to that later. Back in a sec. Welcome back. Hey, so this episode is part of a series inside of the Art of Management called The Management Apocalypse. And that really signals what I'm talking about today, which is our idea behind managing changed dramatically a little over 100 years ago. In fact, so much so that the word managing is actually a relatively new word. It only gained the popular usage that we have now in the 1920s or so. It used to have a different meaning. And it meant to train animals. The, the word was taken to then actually talk about how to train people. And when I say tra training animals, I don't mean like teaching a fifth grade class. I mean like training your dog to not cross the street until you're ready to cross. Training animals. Now, before all of this happened, the pre-apocalyptic pre economy looked like this. Is it, it's craftsman type commerce. Artisans who did things with simple tools and, and passed things from artisan to artisan, etc. And then that gave way to machines, automation. Machines that could do things that these craftsmen did and replace them. But the machines never slept. And the machines did it perfectly over and over. And once you'd built a good machine, you could build a bunch of machines exactly like that machine. You could reproduce the craftsman's skill by just reproducing machines. Now, a lot of good, I just want to note, a lot of good happened with this automation. Our, our country, the world prospered, the, the growth of the middle class, uh, economic development equals prosperity and freedom, and it worked. Our country became a lot better. But the dark side of this is that it shaped, it shaped the way we think about managers and workers. Now, I'm going to go back and just do a little bit of history on this as well. If we go back 500 years, I just want to get a sense of this. Go back 500 years. And in 500 years ago in England, making a sewing needle, this is one of those like hard needles that you put some thread through the eye on one end and you push through fabric and the like. But there weren't any machines then, right? So they were made by hand. In fact, it took 25 different craftsmen in sequence to actually make a sewing needle, 25 different people, okay? And it was such a rare, some of those crafts were so rarefied that in fact, there was only one person in all of England who could actually make the wire for the needle in the correct way. So anyone else, if you couldn't get it from that person, that person was a Spaniard, by the way, but if you couldn't get it from that person, then you'd have to go to another country and try and import it from there. And that's what commerce looked like, okay? This was the world of Adam Smith and the wealth of nations, if you've read any of that stuff. But this age of industrialization changed things. What it allowed you to do is bring, these, bring this craftsman stuff all into one building. So instead of 25 artisans spread maybe across a whole country or even multiple countries, we could put it in one building called a factory. And these machines would be combined. So they do all the functions of the craftsman. They do them over and over tirelessly, over and over. Machines were very simple, but the ironic thing is 
This didn't get rid of people. Sure, it got rid of a lot of craftsmen, but actually there were a lot of people needed to run the machines. Not only operate the machines, but actually then move things from one machine to another. These were very, very simple machines. Now, this industrial automation thrived because it allowed you to scale. All you needed was money to get into the sewing needle business, for example. Buy the machines, put them in a building, and get some people. So people were no longer the source of productivity. It wasn't whether you knew the Spaniard who knew how to make wire. It's whether you had a machine that could make wire like the Spaniard did. And once you had one, you could buy multiples. And you have multiple Spaniards. You have plenty of wire. You could even make wire and sell it to other people. People were no longer the source of productivity. People were needed. And these wonderful machines invented by other people became the new masters. And the people in the factories now serve the machines. Back in a sec. So the machines became the most important thing in the factory. And the manufacturers, the investors who put the machines in the factory, needed the machines to run as quickly as possible, top speed, in order to repay their investment. So the faster you ran your factory, the lower the cost. So workers that worked faster and better with machines were better workers. And what was needed was a way to manage workers to make them work as quickly as possible. How do we make sure that our people are not slowing down our machines? And a man came along and solved that. A mechanical engineer named Friedrich Taylor developed a concept for managing people in these situations, and he called it scientific management. Scientific management called out this idea that for workers, the type of worker you want is not like the artisanal process, the, the craftsman worker where apprentices are grown over years of teaching and experience and coaching and eventually they become a master who can teach other apprentices. But in these new industrial processes, the workforce really requires the ability to do simple things repetitively, it's very mindless. And rather than age, youth was valued. The energy, dexterity, stamina, those far more valuable than craftsmanship because the machines had the craftsmanship inside of them. And this dynamic is where many of our current ideas about management were formed. Yes, craftsmen went away to some degree, but a new class of worker was created. Now, scientific management is still with us today. Everything from time cards, Taylor defined all kinds of things. He said measurement is key. In fact, scientific management really is not the science of people, but how the science of how to manage people and processes within a factory. So it's not about understanding people, it's about whether people can keep the machines going. Taylor said, for example, managers should measure how quickly people work against estimates or time standards. In other words, someone operating a, a, a punch machine that punches holes maybe in a, in a needle should be able to punch, say, 250 pieces per hour. And the measure of the worker then was whether they could meet the time standard for that job. If you do 250, you're doing the job perfectly. If you can only do 200, then maybe you're not doing quite so well. The measure of the worker is whether you could keep up with the machines. 
Now, these jobs were not lovable, certainly, and the mind-numbing working conditions, if you've read about any of that, horrible environments to work in. Taylor noted that in these environments, workers would tend to work at the minimum speed that goes unpunished. These are, these are his exact words. He called it soldiering, as if war-weary soldiers are trudging along and need to be prodded by a bayonet or something like that, threatened with retaliation. In fact, at one point, Taylor noted that some workers need to be, quote-unquote, treated as if they are oxen, large plow beasts pulling, pulling plows through the ground, that the workers are intrinsically lazy and sort of need to be whipped and prodded, become, became part of our perception of managing, what managing means, what a manager's challenge is. In fact, he defined quite clearly what the role of a manager was. He said the duty of enforcing the adoption of standards. In other words, the duty of making sure people are doing it the way that you say they should do it and enforcing their cooperation with this. You need to do it the way I said and the speed I said. Both of these things, the responsibility, the duty rests with management alone. The primary role of managers, the two roles, are to measure and to enforce. Within a decade or so, pretty fun, huh? Within a decade or so, Taylor admitted that the whole approach was somewhat dehumanizing. There were probably better ways to manage. But we never seem to have shaken his words and the hidden meanings of them out of our heads. I'll close this section with Friedrich Taylor, by the way, is widely recognized as the first management consultant. <laughs> Okay, welcome back. Hey, okay, so you could just say, so what, Jack? Hey, thanks for the history lesson, but I'm not managing in the 1930s, so who cares? Well, the answer is that, in fact, a lot of these ideas persist. We still manage as if, in many ways, we're in the 1930s. Things like hierarchy and control, which we'll talk about in later episodes, all come from this environment. So I have a couple questions for you from the sense of, what did we lose when we shifted, when this apocalyptic change to what commerce and industry and managing meant? What did we lose in that transition because people were very focused on driving workers to keep up with the machines? And another thing is, we're really good at absorbing these patterns and persisting them. In fact, if you go, if you go watch any of a handful of movies, you can see this, these ideas quite clearly. Everything from Death of a Salesman to Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and more, more modern versions of those sorts of cultural tropes include things like Office Space and The Office, the, the TV series, of which the American one, though you could argue which is better, but of which the American one does a cleaner job of pointing out the fallacies of modern managing as, as delightfully portrayed by the, the lead character, Michael. But these ideas when we have an idea in our culture, it takes a long time to go away. And, and the, other, the other thing is that most of what he said was wrong. He moved a lot of ideas forward like measurement, but measurement even is tricky. But the role, the, the oppositional role of managers and workers was way wrong. 
And in fact, work today doesn't look anything like that kind of work. In fact, even factory work doesn't look like that kind of work anymore. So that's why when I was sitting in that room, that executive saw herself as someone who was managing laborers. She didn't even know it, but she didn't want thinkers or innovators. She said that quite clearly. She just wanted people to do as they were told. She was managing Taylor style, and it's been the case since its inception, the techniques that were embodied, especially the attitude in scientific management, it makes for pretty unhappy people. So I'm going to give you something to think about here. And what I'd, if, we, if we think of this, this is your one question thing. So if you think about it, at one end of the spectrum, we have the manager who Taylor Style says, why aren't my people living up to that standard, right? Why, why can't they meet that number? Why can't they get 250 punch presses per hour? Why are they not doing exactly the way I told them to? Maybe that's the reason why, right? All they have to do is do that over and over and not ask questions and not interfere with me. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's a manager, maybe that looks a little bit more like managers and managing was before that, that's, that's more like, what do I have to do to help this person succeed? How well can they do? Let's treat this as an experiment, as a journey. Let me surrender my idea that I know that 250 is the right number. Let's see what we can do to unleash the best that they can do, whatever that number is. And then I've done the best I can do as a manager. But think of this continuum. On one end, the, the people are the problem. They're the thing interfering with success. And on the other end, they're the people responsible for success. And the manager's job is to encourage them and support them into success. Look at the interactions you see. Look at the attitudes you see and hear inside your workplace and even within yourself. And see if you can hear a little bit of Friedrich Taylor echoing still over 100 years later. So let's close with, if you're liking this, and by the way, I'm enjoying it. So I, hopefully this is my second podcast, full podcast or episode I've done. Um, but if you're liking it, let a few people know about it. Give us a shout out on social media of your choice. Remember, better managing makes everyone happier, even you. You can find helpful notes, information, supporting links on our cleverly named website, theartof.management. That is theartof, all one word, dot .management, no.com on the end. And until we meet again, be safe out there. See you.